Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Um, my name's Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my privilege to be continuing our series in Luke. Uh, we are looking at the historical figure of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, and we are in our fourth um, installment. Just a show of hands, does anyone know what penultimate means? Okay, thank you. See? Okay, no, okay, I'm just saying. They're like, please can you not use the word penultimate when you mean the second to last? Just say second to last. I'm like, everyone knows what penultimate means. Anyway, we are not in the penultimate of our series. I just wanted to prove a very public point, you know, so. Uh, we are um, in Luke 5. As many of you that have kind of been with us on this journey will know we um, were introduced um, to the adult Jesus at his baptism when John baptized him. He then went into a time of temptation and trial uh, where he was fasting for 40 days and nights where the devil tempted him. He came out of that, went into a synagogue, and last week, as Sean said, he read his inaugural address. Uh, he read out of Isaiah and told uh, the people in that city why it was he had come. They were super unhappy with the kind of change in their minds that that would take in order for that to understand. And so they tried to kill him. They sent him to the top of this cliff, and he just walked through them because it wasn't his moment to die. And now we pick up the story with Jesus after having done um, a couple of miracles, which for me is always just an astounding thing. It's like they throw it in, like it's spice to the story. Oh, and he did this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, he is doing all these amazing things as he's walking and talking about the kingdom of God. But we pick him up in Luke 5, and um, I'm going to be preaching the whole chapter of Luke 5, but don't panic. Um, we're not going to do all of it. All what I'm going to say is the first half of it, I'm just going to paraphrase. The beginning of Luke 5, Jesus is walking along, and uh, people are kind of pressing in against him. And so what he does is he gets into this boat uh, while the people are on the land, and he begins to teach them. And the boat that he gets into is the boat of a man called Simon Peter. And uh, as he's finished, he says to Simon Peter, um, I want you to go out and cast your nets into the deep and, and get a, a, big, a big catch of fish. And so Simon Peter, like I can imagine, just puts his head down and says, you know, we've been fishing all night um, and we've caught nothing. Uh, but at your word, I will go out. This Saturday, actually yesterday, um, I had the distinct privilege of going out on Neil's dad's deep sea fishing boat. And we had all the bells and whistles. Let me tell you, it was amazing. You know, we slept on the boat, um, like in proper beds, kind of, you know. Um, we woke up and we had breakfast and there was an espresso machine. You know what I mean? We, I mean, this was, this was amazing stuff, you know. We had GPS and we had sonar and we had everything. You know what I mean? We had fishing spots on the computer. This is where we caught fish and everything. We caught nothing, you know. At the, end, at the end of the day, um, Neil's dad said to me, well, you said you wanted to go fishing, not catching. So next time, you need to be a little more specific. Man, it's a, it's a lot of work. And then we get out, we wash the boat, and these guys are washing their nets, and they're like, 
seriously, this guy is going to tell us what to do? I'm pretty sure none of them were violently seasick, like both Sean and I were. I mean, guys, you should have seen your leaders there. It was a really, really poor example of leading from the front. So Sean had the port side, and he was, he was introducing himself to Ralph, and I had the starboard side, and I was introducing myself to Huey, you know? Um, and so, so what happens in this scenario is here's this man who knows nothing about fishing. He comes and he says, look, go out into the deep. They catch this massive catch of fish. They bring it back. And in verse 7, uh, Simon Peter says, because they catch this massive uh, um, haul of fish, they signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They come and fill both the boats to the point where they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And by way of introduction, I just want to talk about the five ways that people come to Jesus in this passage. Um, the first way that people come to Jesus in, the, in this passage is that people recognize exactly who he is. So in this moment, Simon Peter says, I am a sinful man. He's not recognizing that he's sinful because he just didn't listen to Jesus in the context of the fishing. He's not saying, you know, I should have known better. You would have known a lot about fishing. No, in that moment, he realizes his state, Simon Peter's state, and he realizes that Jesus is the Lord of all, that Jesus is the Messiah. He comes to this point of recognizing his sinful self and recognizing the gap between who he is and who Jesus is. Remember, we've spoken about this in the past. There's a recognition that we are unworthy, not that we are worthless. And so there's a sense in which Simon Peter recognizes that he's unworthy to actually have this man near him because of who he is and what he represents. And in that moment, he comes to Jesus with this recognition, get away from me, I'm a sinful man, I shouldn't be near you. He recognizes his sin. The second way that people come to Jesus is when they um, follow someone else. So what happens, we get in verse 10, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, um, Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And so when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So James and John look at what has happened to Simon Peter. And in that moment, Jesus said, Don't be afraid, the same thing the same purpose, the same vision for your life is what you'll receive, come and follow me. It is interesting in the first point uh, that, uh, that Jesus in this section doesn't say to Peter, follow me. Peter says, I'm coming. In the second um, moment with Simon and, uh, with, sorry, with James and John, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They were persuaded by Simon Peter's actions to follow Jesus. They're looking at this guy and thinking, man, this is important and significant to him. Maybe we should be doing the same thing. The way in which we as a community and as individuals revel in the mercies of God, proclaim the mercies of God, demonstrate the mercies of God, and participate in acts of mercy for the common good is what people will see of us. Um, is it likely that as someone looks at your life and your decisions, that they will make a decision to follow Jesus? And so we look at these responses. Firstly, there's the recognition of sin. Secondly, we look around, or people are looking at us, and are saying, I'm actually going to make that same decision that you've made because of what it represents in your life. The uncomfortable truth is we all have someone watching us. 
whether it's our children, whether it's our coworkers, whether it's people we hang out with, and they're watching our words and decisions. What decision are they likely to make based on our behavior when it comes to Jesus? Jesus continues, he comes off the land, he walks into the city, and there is this leper. And this leper reaches to Jesus and says to him, he fell on his face and he says to him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the the leprosy left him. This is a man who is seeking Jesus out. I don't have a whole lot of time to tell you why lepers shouldn't have been in the city in the first place. If you had leprosy, you were banned from the city because people didn't want to catch it. But he heard that Jesus was going to be here. He came into the city, he fell on his face, and he said, I have a desperate need. I'm in pain. There are people all around us that are in pain, whether it's addiction, physical pain, emotional pain, and they are looking for someone to heal that. Jesus continues, and we pick up in verse 17. Jesus is teaching, and it looks like he's teaching in a home. And Scripture says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal. And so what happens is we see a couple of people carrying a paralytic man to Jesus, and they couldn't get in so that Jesus could heal him. So what they do is they start, and a lot of us that are familiar with the Bible know the story, they start to to dig out the, the roof, and then they lower him down in front of Jesus, and this is what happens in verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now the Pharisees, um, the religious leaders of the day, and the scribes, uh, they don't like this. They're like, no, 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 you you can't say that. So Jesus says in verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Then, I can imagine, can you imagine this guy who was brought there by his friends? Now, not only is he walking, but his sins are forgiven. He's like rolled up his bedroll, and out he goes. A lot of us have had friends that have brought us to Jesus. A lot of us have had friends that have coped with our annoyances, coped with our idiosyncrasies, and actually brought us to the feet of Jesus, saying, I don't know that I have what you need, but I know someone that is able to help you. And so we find in these pictures these amazing ways in which people come to Jesus. One, people recognize their own sin and who Jesus is. Number two, they look at the way other people respond and say, wow, I should be paying more attention to this. Number three, there's this desperate need in your heart or pain or addiction or sin that only Jesus can heal, and you seek him out. Fourthly, your friends bring you to Jesus. And and my question to us is like, are we bringing others to Jesus? Are we taking the kinds of risks that these men were taking by actually you know, opening, I don't know how that works. I mean, I know it wasn't a tiled roof. I know it wasn't a tin roof. I just know it wasn't easy and it was messy. But they were convinced that if they laid this man at Jesus' feet, that Jesus would heal him. There are people that have carried us to Jesus that have been bold and brave. And I guess the question I'm asking is, are we carrying anyone to Jesus? The main text I want to look at is the fifth way that people come to Jesus, and this is where Jesus intentionally and individually 
pursues us in the midst of our sin. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, Levi is also Matthew. And sitting at the tax booth, sorry, sitting at the tax booth, he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. It's funny how they didn't grumble to Jesus directly necessarily. They grumbled to the disciples, you know. Saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus intentionally and individually pursues Levi, who we know as Matthew, the person who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I want you to understand kind of the depth of the sin that Levi Matthew was involved in. He's actively sinning. He's sitting at his toll collection booth. So don't think like fast pass now. Don't think, you know, the little barcode on your car that you can go through and collecting tolls. In those days, what the Romans would do is they would set up contracts with people. And they would say, we want to get $200 for the month. Um, and we are going to give you the authority to charge that tax. What we want is $200 at the end of the month. Whatever you make over that, that's you get to keep. However you collect that money, that's on you. They didn't care. And so that's why tax collection was such a profitable business. That's why throughout the Gospels, you'll see, both in Matthew and in Luke, and we mentioned this before when John was talking to the tax collectors, don't take more than you should. Well, why shouldn't they? All I have to do is collect $200 and I can give that to the Romans and everything else I collect is mine. Now, not only that, but they had access to the Roman patrols. The tax collectors could use the Roman patrols. And so they were literally in partnership with the oppressive government to be able to take tax from the people that are living in the promised land that God had told them that this was their land. So not only did they have access to the Roman soldiers, they also had their own thugs, as if that wasn't enough. They could do whatever they wanted to do to collect the tax. And it's in this environment where Jesus says to him, follow me. Jesus is not unaware of what is happening. Uh, Simon Peter didn't go up to him afterwards and said, you know, that, that's the tax collector you probably were talking about the guy standing next to him paying the tax, you know, because he's a puppet of Rome and the other guy isn't. No, he looks at Levi and Matthew and he says, follow me. Why? Because he knew he was sick. And we'll get to this. Jesus said, I haven't come for the healthy, I've come for the sick because the sick know that they need a doctor. It's possible for you to be engaged in deep sin and for you to still hear the voice of Jesus saying, follow me. That is the power of the grace of God. It's possible for you to be intentionally doing something wrong and to hear the voice of God saying, follow me. It is also possible for you to become so seared by your sin that that voice becomes a whisper, that that whisper becomes a mumble, and that you can no longer hear that voice. So my, my charge is that when you hear that voice, that, spirit, that, that Holy Spirit whispering to you, follow me, leave everything, follow me, to respond in the way that Matthew responded. The amazing thing here is that 
pursued people, people that have responded to the grace of God are generous, they're invitational, they're inclusive, they're joyful, they're also a little awkward. And we see this because Matthew decides to throw this big party, this amazing feast. He moves from extorting people to being generous with people. He's modeling the gospel here. Now, this is not a potluck uh, banquet. This is not a potluck feast where everyone kind of brings their own thing. You know, we, we have people in our life group that are like, not, I, I mean, I'll, I'll do it, not my favorite, you know. Um, this is not where everyone brings like six bags of chips and no one brings anything else. This also isn't one of those things where we say, hey, let's go out and everyone Venmos everyone else the certain amount. This is where someone comes and says, come and let's party, and I will take all of the expense for that party. In fact, that was the point. The point of throwing these lavish banquets in these times was to prove that you had money, was to prove that you were someone, was to prove that you were someone of honor in the community, because it was super expensive. You know, I always think of my big fat Greek wedding when, um, when they're throwing this massive party, um, and, and Ian's parents arrive with a with a little bundt cake, and the Greeks are totally confused because they don't know what a bundt cake is, and why would you bring it in the first place? Because I remember, I remember, you know, when, when Karen would come over to our place um, to eat as a Greek family, I mean, it was, it was a lavish affair, and at one point, Karen's parents were coming, and, and she said, well, can we bring anything, you know? And my mom looks at me and says, we are not foreigners. They don't bring anything. This is our opportunity to feast. Yeah, I know, it is a bit of a backhanded kind of thing. But, but this culture was where you arrived and everything was set out for you. They were lavish affairs. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Probably best I didn't hear that, right? <laughs> let, me, let me say this. When, when we create these environments, when we invite people around our table, when we've responded to the gospel and want people to feel welcome, it isn't about money. Because you can create a lavish environment without spending a whole lot of money. Karen and I were um, invited to a township church. In South Africa, township churches are kind of, so think of like a slum uh, in, in an area. Um, very, very poor. We were invited and, um, and we were preaching and then they, they put on lunch for us. Now, this was an, an incredibly poor church. And... Um, and so we go to the lunch, and I'm expecting, and I've said to Karen, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's staring at you. I don't care if there are bits that you have never seen in a pot before. We eat whatever we eat. And so poor Karen is getting herself ready. I'm going to swallow this. I'm going to do it, whatever it is, because it's their kindness. And she comes out with a, a, a tray of cucumber sandwiches. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is like, I know for her how much that would have cost. And I know for her, in her mind, what she's thinking is this is what they eat. This is what they would expect. And so I'm going to do this. I've never felt so welcomed. I don't like cucumber sandwiches. <laughs> I don't make myself cucumber sandwich. I don't think I've had one since. But in that moment... In that moment, I was like, there is not a more lavish thing that you can do for me than to present this to me. 
And in our context, I think what we do is we just get caught up in our heads so often when all we, all we need to do is ask God for an extravagant heart, an invitational heart, and say, come, come and feast with me. Because I used to be an enemy of God, and now all of that has been, has been obliterated by the blood of Jesus. I used to be lost and I'm found. I used to be blind and now I see. And I want to share that freedom with you in whatever small way that I can. We look at this party, we look at Levi's response, and, and throughout the book of Luke, we, we find words like gracious and lavish, joyful, welcoming, feasting. We look at the Pharisees, and they're religious and exclusive, unwelcoming, grumbling, self-righteous, talking about fasting. Who wants to hang out with those guys? Not me. In the first century, Mary Douglas, an anthropologist, tells us that tables represented intimacy, friendship, and unity. This wasn't just within the Jewish kind of culture. This was in all cultures. And they represented specific boundary markers. Well, think about it. It's, it's very difficult in, first century, um, in the first century to have a meal with someone that's different from you. Who are we going to have a meal with? Well, we're not going to have a meal with tax collectors. Or we're not going to have a meal with Gentiles because we're Jews. We're not going to have a meal with Greeks. So who are we going to have a meal with is complicated. How are we going to have this meal is complicated. Well, do they wash their hands in this way? You know, are, are, the, are the utensils cleaned? And Jesus talks about that later on. So who are we going to have a meal with is complicated. How are we going to have this meal is complicated. When are we going to have this meal? Is it on the Sabbath? Is it on a feast day? There was a lot of talking about this is the kind of party you should throw on this day. This is the kind of party you should throw on that day. What's it? No white after Labor Day, whatever the whole thing is. I don't know. There are all these cultural rules about parties and which ones should be thrown when. So it's complicated in terms of who? It's complicated in terms of how. It's complicated in terms of when. It's also complicated in terms of what. What are we going to eat? There's a lot of food that certain people can't eat. And this is not because they can't digest it. This is not because they think it's wrong. This is literally because this will make them unclean when the context of how they understand um, who God is. So this is a, a complex thing. The idea of inviting someone to a meal is a complex thing. The problem is when we invite someone into our meals, and I'm talking about both, both literally and figuratively, one of the things that we tend to do, which we see in, in the first century, is we tend to embrace one set of people, and in order to embrace one set of people, we reject another set of people. This is not the meal that Jesus is at. Jesus is at a meal with Pharisees, with disciples, with tax collectors, and other sinners. Now, it would make perfect sense for him to say, I cannot eat a meal with you, tax collectors, because you guys are puppets of Rome, and what you've done is you've joined forces with the oppressor, and therefore I'm not able to eat with you. But I would gladly eat with you because you are not part of that system, or the other way around. Jesus doesn't do that. In our lives, what we do is we actually tend to be more exclusive with people groups that we felt have hurt other people groups. So bear with me now. It is very unlikely that you'll invite someone to a meal that you disagree with. It's even more unlikely that you'll invite someone to a meal that you believe has hurt someone that you dearly care for. And so in this context, in this meal, there is the sense in which there are people that are actively working against what the Pharisees believe to be the purpose of the kingdom of God. They are sitting at this meal. 
That's why they're asking the question, why are these people here? Here's the question I want to ask us, is if someone walks into our meals, would they be like, yeah, that makes about sense. You guys are all college educated, you're between the ages of 30 and 40, all have kids, and that makes sense. See this group? Or would they sit there and think, what on earth are these people doing here together? They come from different race groups, they come from different ages, they come from different political backgrounds. What is going on here? I don't see a clear path to this. But that's the beauty of the meals that Jesus was participating in. That's the, the awkwardness of the question. That's why this question has to be asked. We know that, that parties and invites are awkward. It's one of the most awkward things I've experienced is, you know, I'll, I'll get an invite and I'll say, hey, Sean, see you later at the party. And he's like, what party? And I'm like, nothing. I thought he was invited, which is why I said, I'll see you at the party. Now I've got to try and not lie and actually say, never mind, what's that? Squirrel, you know? Um, Maybe you're at a party and you're like, oh, you feel really good that you've been invited to this party. And then you see other people walk in and you realize, oh, it's not as exclusive as I thought. Not if they're there, you know. No, no. I mean, no one else thinks that, right? Just me. What about this? Have you ever been at a wedding and you're like, what are those people doing here? And not like they shouldn't be here because they, they don't belong or they're below you, but like, I can't figure out the connection between the couple that's here, and, and how the, these people got here. I'm sure most people are asking there about me, or, this is my favorite, when you go to a wedding, and you're, there's like this table where we don't know what to do with the rest of you, so we're just gonna put you in this table, you know what I mean? So, like if you've just had a wedding and you had a table like that, just be free, because I don't know what else to do with that, you know? But, but they're awkward. You know, meals, invitations, parties, they're awkward. And because meals were markers of inclusivity, of shared lives, of kinship and unity in the entire Mediterranean world, not just within the Jewish culture, this question has to be asked. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now, their motive may have been pure. I would say, though, if they're grumbling, it's probably that their motive is not pure. This is not just some socially uncomfortable situation. This is a legitimate question the Pharisees are asking. Even if their motive is wrong, it's highly offensive. These are not just people from another culture. I mean, that would be bad enough. These aren't Greeks. That would be bad enough, you know. These are sellouts. These are sinners. These are people that are defiling themselves. And by definition, by being here, they're defiling us. These are collaborators. These are enemies. How can you eat with them? In South Africa, when we would have meals during the time of apartheid, we would have meals in, in mixed groups. If, if you were white in that group, you were seen as a terrorist sympathizer. If you were black in that group, you were seen as an apartheid collaborator. Now, I'm making a generalization. What I'm saying is literally just by having a meal together was dangerous for people because of what other people would think. Why is Nick having this meal with these people? Why is this person having this meal with Nick? 
We had people followed, we had people exposed, all of those kinds of things because there's this sense of this is not just an awkward social situation at a wedding where it's like, I don't know what to do with these people, let's just put them at that table. No, these are enemies. And so Jesus responds very, very powerfully. He says, I did not come for the righteous. I came for the sick. Holiness is not the enemy here. Self-righteousness is the enemy that Jesus is pointing out. A life committed to God's pattern for human flourishing is not, Jesus is not saying, don't keep these standards. He's not saying it's okay to be holy. He, he didn't say no one at this table is sick. But what he did say is, I came for the sick. Our tendency when we are around sick people within the context of sin, within the context of um, whether they are following Jesus or not, our context is to minimize sin in order to maximize the value of that person. And so what we tend to do is we tend to say, it's not such a big deal that you do that. Because what you're trying to do is elevate the common grace that is in every single human being. And what we're actually doing is devaluing it because Jesus is saying, it is a big deal that you are doing that or caught in that or responding in that because that is not the pattern for you to flourish as a human being. I would know because I created you. Make sense? He takes a shot at the self-righteous who don't need help. That's why what Jesus did in the beginning of this, of this passage is powerful. He goes and he touches the leper. What is he saying to the religious community? It's not who you touch that is unclean. It's the state of your heart that makes you unclean. And later on, Luke will show us some more distinct examples of that. That's why the act of forgiving the paralytic is critical in understanding who Jesus is. Because he's not just some power prophet that is able to do this and make some miracles come to pass. Huge amounts of fish, the leper healed. No, the paralytic says your sins are forgiven. And Jesus says, I am the son of of man. I am God walking as a human being. I have the power to forgive sin. If I say to you, you're forgiven, it is done. That is what he's modeling. Jesus' posture is very clear in these contexts. Yes, there are people that are outside of the boundaries of holiness. There's people that are outside of the boundaries of holiness by their own choice. They chose to be tax collectors. There's people that are outside of the boundaries of holiness because of circumstances. They're paralyzed, or they're a leper, or they've been given to some circumstance where they can't help the kind of uncleanness in those, in those words that they are. But he welcomes them for one major reason, because they recognize their need of him. That was the only marker that Jesus needed. Whether you were a Pharisee, whether you were a temple guard, whether you were a fisherman, whether you were a leper, a paralytic, a tax collector, the only thing that Jesus wanted to know is, did you recognize that you need a doctor? Now, remember when Sean spoke last week? Jesus said, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me, physician, heal yourself. Do you guys remember that? Jesus prophesied. He said, I know what you're going to say. I've read this. You guys are angry, and you're going to go say, physician, heal yourself. It's no coincidence that here Jesus is talking about a physician. Because what he picked up in chapter 4 of the religious community that he was part of is what? We don't need a physician. What are we seeing here in chapter 5? 
People saying, God, I need help. I need help. And we see the biggest act of grace here in Matthew, where Matthew hasn't even said, I need help, where Jesus is saying, I'm going to help you. Follow me. He leaves everything and follows him. Acknowledging the sickness and asking the doctor for help is what is required to enter the kingdom. The acknowledgement of saying that I'm sick is that point at which faith is exercised. It is the only ingredient that we need for forgiveness and restoration to take place. The minute you say, I need you, Jesus, whether you are someone that is is looking at the claims of Jesus or whether you've been a Christ follower for ages, the act of repentance is a continuous one. The minute you say, I'm sick, I need a doctor, Jesus, help me, you are flooded with grace because that is the nature of the God that we serve. He's trying to help us to understand not to be prideful, but to be dependent on Him. We also know that repentance is obvious for everyone. Jesus' invitation is for all to repent. We know that from John the baptizer. The message didn't change from John to Jesus, but what John didn't provide was the means for repentance. What John is saying, these are the things you should not be doing. These, this lifestyle is the way you should not be living. Now, Jesus enters and says, that is correct, and I am the way that you can stop doing that. Not just stop doing bad things, but I'm the way that you can come into the fullness and flourish in your life as a human being. You look at Simon, Peter, James, John, and Levi, they left everything. They abandoned their life, they'd, a life that they'd either crafted very, very carefully, or a life that was just painful full of hurt and exclusion like the leper and the paralytic. Pharisees can't handle that. They're still annoyed. So even though Jesus says, okay, this is why I've come, they ask a follow-up question. Okay? The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but you yourselves eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them this parable, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old one. If he does, he will tear the new, and the new piece will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and they will be spilt, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What is all that about? Now, I don't have to, the time to talk about the wineskins. We will. But that is pointing to, as Luke, the writer of Acts, is pointing to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit during the time of Pentecost. But when Jesus is saying this, what we need to be reminded of is that fasting was a signal of dissatisfaction with the present. It was a way in which in which people would say, man, I'm longing for the fullness, the way things should be. In the Old Testament, fasting was connected to an expectation of hope. We're going to fast in the, and the kingdom will break through, that the situation will be changed, which is exactly why his disciples weren't fasting. What Jesus is saying, all the fasting that was happening in the Old Testament, I am the fulfillment of that. I am the bridegroom. 
What does that mean? In, the, in, in Revelation, it says that there will be a wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. That's, that's what he's pointing towards. It's, it's the foreshadow of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he's saying, when the bridegroom is taken away, when I'm ascended into heaven, then my disciples will fast. But why should they fast while I am with them? This is exactly why they're not fasting now. This hope, this expectation, this freedom is here. It's Jesus himself. The fishermen get that. The lepers get that. The paralytic gets it. The tax collector gets it. But the Pharisees, they don't get it. He gives a clue to the already not yet kingdom. He gives a clue by being able to heal people, but not all violence and oppression has ceased. Because now, as people that are part of the bride, part of the church, part of the longing for Jesus to return, we do fast. We fast in expectation for things to change. But there's this massive difference in that because we are in the already not yet kingdom, we get to feast and fast. We get to rejoice in the things that Jesus is able to provide us now while looking forward to the future. The the already not yet kingdom, it's a difficult thing to understand. It's even a difficult thing to, to explain. What does it mean that Jesus created a kingdom when he came because he could heal the blind and he could set free those that were demonic? But why do we still live in so much pain and hardship? John Tyson used this amazing illustration where he said, well, let's think of it as as why we celebrate Juneteenth. So Juneteenth is a celebration of when the Emancipation Proclamation was made in Galveston, Texas. Now, the proclamation was made in the capital two and a half years prior to that. But two and a half years prior to that, legally, slaves in Texas were free. That's what happened legally. Practically, that was not the case. Until two and a half years had passed, and the federal army came and made that proclamation. That's similar to the way in which we can understand the kingdom of God. Jesus has arrived and has stated that there is a new government and a new reality. And we can live in the part fullness of that. But the time that we're waiting for is until that proclamation finally gets made. Does that make sense? Jesus is saying this is not an add-on, the patch of cloth. This This is not something you can just add to your life. Jesus is the fulfillment of grace and truth. So grace cannot be stitched on to a system of self-righteousness and self-importance. You can't do that. You can't take a patch of grace and stick it on like a brownie badge and say, everything else that I've done, that's, this is me, and I'm going to take grace and stick it on there. I'm going to take Jesus and, and add that onto my life. Jesus is the fulfillment of all grace. Jesus is also full of truth. And so what we can't do is take this patch of truth Because we believe in this vague idea of spirituality, and we'll say, yeah, I I believe, you know, that you you can be a good person, and there there are multiple ways to receive peace with God, and give me the Jesus patch, and I can add that onto that. So whether you are a legalistic neurotic that is doing everything in your power to try and keep up with the moral terms of God, you can't take Jesus and patch that on. Equally, you can't just be this vague kind of Yeah, I kind of believe in those things, and I'm not really sure, because the exclusive claims of Jesus, those are a little too difficult for me to handle. But I'll take Jesus and patch that onto my ideas. Just saying you can't do that. This is not what's happening here. This is a brand new thing. Now, that in and of itself is, is brand new, because, Nick, you've been saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. So how can this be a brand new thing? Because it looks 
brand new. It is the fulfillment of everything that was spoken of in terms of the covenant of Abraham, but it looks brand new, which is why the Pharisees cannot handle it. This is not an addition to the law. This is the fulfillment of it. Luke tries in various different ways to help us understand that this is not something that just kind of was created out of nowhere. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. Ben, you can come up. I know this has been kind of a little shotgun, maybe a lot to handle. So what I'm going to do is just recap and ask questions in the context of pre-banquet and post-banquet. I started this morning basically saying, you know, on his way to the banquet, there were these moments, these lives that, that were utterly changed. And I want you to ask yourself some questions. I want you to ask yourself, are you someone that recognizes their own sin? Now, this could be in the context of being a seeker. It could be in the context of, of never having come to faith in Jesus. And this is an initial response, much like Simon Peter's was, where the revelation of who Jesus is has, has been made clear to you, and you, you want to take that step. That could be it. But it is also maybe in the sense of recognizing that I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman. There are things in my life that I actually am sick and I need the doctor's help with. Or maybe, you know, because there's an element of pride with Simon Peter. I mean, it's like, oh, really, we've been fishing all night. There was no element of pride with the, the leper, the paralytic. You know how embarrassing it is for anyone to carry you? There's, the pride is all gone. Maybe you're sitting there like, I am, I am not in this place of actually saying, you've got to prove something to me. I'm in a place of saying, Jesus, I need your help. I'm full of leprosy. I cannot walk. I know you can bring healing. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe as you've been sitting here thinking, you've been thinking of a friend that you know needs to be brought to Jesus. You've been thinking of someone that, that you know that Jesus can help them with and you need to bring them. Or maybe you are still sitting at your toll booth doing whatever you want to do and you hear the words of Jesus saying, follow me. There's some banquet questions that maybe we need to ask. Am I confused and grumbling about who's sitting around Jesus' table? The thing that hurt me the most these last 18 months was the phrase, how can you call yourself a Christian if fill in the blank? In other words, why are these people at the table? Maybe that's something we need to look at and actually say, why are you at the table? Do you know why you're at the table? You are someone's tax collector. Someone is looking at you saying, why is that person at the table? Do you know what they've done? Do you know who they've, who they've joined forces with? Do you, know, do you know what they believe? We are all someone's tax collector. 
Romans 5, verse 6 to 11. While we were still weak at the right moment, Christ died for the ungodly people. It isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person. Though maybe someone might dare to die for a good person. But God shows his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now that we've been made righteous by his blood, we can be even more certain that we'll be saved from God's wrath through him. For if we were reconciled to God through the death of his son while we were still enemies, now that we have been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we'll be saved by his life? And not only that, we take pride in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom we now have a restored relationship with God. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you that you didn't come as some patch, but you came to give yourself fully to us. I want to thank you that you sought us out whether we were proud and arrogant, whether we followed our friends into a situation, we came to faith, our family, whether we needed to be cleansed from the hurt that had been perpetrated on us. We've all heard your voice, Jesus, saying, follow me. And I want to pray, Spirit of God, even as we worship, I want to pray that you would minister to your people. I want to pray if there's anyone here that that doesn't know what it's like to sit at the table of Jesus. I want to pray that this morning they'd be able to taste bread and wine in a fresh way. We need you, God. Come minister, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Nick. We're, uh, we're going to respond in communion. There's, um, there's two tables here. There's a table, uh, two, two tables. The front table has wine and it. The, uh, the back table has uh, some, I think, unleavened um, bread. But the whole time that Nick was um, just preaching, and uh, I, was, I was thinking about uh, being on that boat yesterday, and uh, and then getting home last night, and Neil had warned me that I would still feel like I was just moving, and I did. And as Nick was talking about just these different categories of people, where where you might find yourself, how you respond to Jesus, it just. There's a reality that the physician is here this morning, and his goal is not just to restore your equilibrium. Like, the, to, to heal the leper, the goal wasn't just to heal the leper. The goal was life beyond that healing. The goal is to restore your equilibrium so that you might run the race that's set before you. Uh, the, the goal is to turn us into the fishers of men. Uh, and, and so I, I would love for us, the band is gonna, band is gonna go uh, and continue to play. We're gonna, we're gonna get, uh, we're gonna get uh, the elements. We're gonna take it together. Um, I'm gonna give us a moment to, to pause and to consider kind of where you find yourself with what Nick shared this morning. What kind of category, what do you need from Jesus? But we're all gonna take the elements together around the same table, each of us bringing our own stuff to that table and understand that, man, what we're taking is not just to give you that healing or that one little thing. It's to equip us to run into this next week. It's, a, it's, it's in order to make us fishers of men. So while the band continues to go, I want to kind of uh, invite us to go to the elements, come back, and I'll lead us through, through communion.
invite you to consider right now what you what you need from what you need from Jesus this morning. The physician is here. After we take communion, there are going to be people to my left and to your right uh, that are available to pray with you. No matter what it is that you need prayer for, um, you know the leper came forward and Jesus stepped forward and touched him. And um, we all need each other. And there's nothing wrong with receiving prayer. Um, Lord, we thank you for just loving us. I thank you for your great consistency, this, these elements that we hold in our hand, um, both metaphorical and real, tangible of your real body that was broken for us, that we take in remembrance of you. Lord, we, um, we also hold this cup. And we remember that we, we, uh, we were beggars, we were sinners. That you did not save us for anything righteous that we have done. It is your mercy, your grace, your goodness. You've moved towards us. This cup that we hold in our hands is for the remission of our sins and we drink it in remembering that and remembering you Jesus we um, we thank you we receive your grace your kindness we receive what it is that you say about us God, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. I pray a, a blessing of release over them. I ask, Lord, in every way that they need to be set free to run the race that you have called them to run, that they would receive that grace, Lord, that you would provide, um, you would provide what they need, both emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. I pray a blessing on their lives, their homes, and their week. I pray, Lord, that you would make all of us fishers of men, that you would help each and every one of us to move through from just healing into the fullness of life that you have offered to us, Lord. We receive your grace, and we love you. And the church said, amen, amen. Well, the band is going to continue to play a little bit. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.